Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. And I'm Nat Mose. And this time we're going to be talking about the unrestriction of Burning Wish, a short review of Return to Ravnica cards, discussion of the upcoming Team Serious Open, taking on the vintage community worldwide, and then lastly, our unique food and drink restaurant reviews from Sandusky. So one big development uh, was that Burning Wish was unrestricted last night. You know, that, that has, I think, big, big implications, although not necessarily deep implications. Uh, it could, could possibly be used in a combo deck. It could be used in a control deck. Yeah, and I'm interested I, to see what happens. Yeah, I, I think, and we were talking about this earlier, it's interesting that Burning Wish was restricted in 2003, and I was looking at the dates, and I saw that we didn't have any red rituals in the format when Burning Wish was restricted. So it was restricted in 2003, and then in 2004, we had the printing of Desperate Ritual, and then in 2005, that was when Seething Song was printed, and then we got Pyretic Ritual, Rite of Flame. So red, mono-red Ritual Storm has a lot of tools now, and it has Burning Wish to prop it up and get wind conditions and stuff like that. So we've never well, seen these these things exist together. Right. And it's got it's got things like past in flames. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's got grape shot. You know, it's got it's, it has a wind condition and a big enabler. I mean, I think that's that's a big thing. I guess the question um, is though, if we had all of these red tools before, we had lots of red rituals, we had past in flames, we've had wheel of fortune, uh grape shot. Do do we think that Burning Wish is enough of an asset that it could bring this deck out into the open? Or are there other reasons why this has never come around? Well, I mean, I think the question is whether playing red is any better than playing blue and or black. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, Dark Ritual is still more powerful than any of the red rituals. You have to have at least two Rite of Flames before it's a Dark Ritual. Yeah, and the um, rest of them don't even come close. Right. Um yeah, they're, they're really not even close. Um, I mean, speaking, speaking from years of playing Belcher, like getting a seething song countered is probably about the worst thing that can happen while you're trying to go hot. Whereas losing a, losing a dark ritual may or may not sink you, but, um, it's, it, the difference of how much mana you're investing in that is huge. Yeah, I agree. And even, uh, I was goldfishing that, uh, that black Belcher deck the other day. And mm-hmm. just from so long playing red rituals and having to usually spend two mana to get three out, the difference between spending right. two and getting three and spending one for dark ritual and getting three, entirely different experience. It just makes right. the black ritual base feel so much better than the red ritual base. Right. Well, it, it cuts an entire card out. I mean, that's yeah. effectively what it does. Like, to get from one to three mana in red, you need three cards. And to yeah. get from one to three mana in black, you need two cards. And I guess ultimately, when we're talking about red ritual combo, combo's been low for a while now for reasons that are not because of card pool. Right. Um, I would compare something like that to be a very aggressive, fragile shell like Belcher. Right. There are right. reasons why Belcher isn't being played right now, and I don't think that, metal misstep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe not very good implications for combo, as someone else said. Without Lion's Eye Diamond, Lion's Eye Diamond was the other part of of that of Long. that deck. 
that right. made Burning Wish really good. Right. Yeah. So what about it in in a control deck? Uh, I mean, Control Slaver played a Burning Wish. Burning Slaver existed where it could it could pull either a win condition, usually tendrils, or you know an answer that it needed out of the board, something like pyroclasm uh, to wipe creatures or uh, artifact removal, that sort of thing. Can we play that? Is that is that good enough? I think it certainly seems decent. I mean, I was I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking, well, why isn't why is Burning Wish restricted? Whereas we have Cunning Wish, which is blue, costs one more, but it is at instant speed and isn't isn't played at all. I haven't seen a Cunning Wish in quite a while. And right. I was, yeah. And I was reading the the ban and restricted announcement for for Burning Wish, and it was actually very interesting because they were saying that whereas there are very good instants in Vintage, the mm-hmm. instants that are good are good because they are under costed. So you have like right. Ancestor Recall, which is right. awesome at one mana, but really not so good at four mana. Right. Whereas the sorceries in Vintage that are really good are really good at almost any cost. So right. you can play you can play Burning Wish and get Yogmoth's Will. You can still get a lot of mileage out of that. You can play Burning Wish and Balance. You can get a lot of mileage out of that. Right. They're really strong effects. Right. I think that. Well, I mean, I think with Yogmoth's Will for sure, you're not going to keep that in your sideboard. I mean, you're not going to keep Yogmoth's Will. You're not going to keep Demonic Tutor. You're not going to keep Time Walk in your sideboard. Agree. But but exactly something like Balance, where you can. I mean, Balance is still a good card at four mana. Because that's still combining Wrath of God, which is a four mana sorcery, and Armageddon, which is a four mana sorcery. And I mean, I, I think going to get balance is still potentially game wrecking, even at that point. And, and the same thing, going to get Pyroclasm against a fish deck. I mean, you can just go and wipe their whole board for four mana, which and you know, and, and having would... access to that on game one, no less. Right. right. Oh, exactly. And I, I think that if you're if you're playing a control deck and planning on on a longer game where you have time to establish yourself have mana in play set things up so that you are you have inevitability so that you win i think that's i think that's the big thing is what you're that's what you're looking for i think burning wish could help that i don't know that you would necessarily play four of them because that seems like a lot yeah and you're if you're worried about keeping not always relevant sorceries in your deck Burning Wish could certainly be one of those sorceries that's not always relevant. So I, I don't know that you play four, but I, I think it certainly has a place there. I think that a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but I, we've seen people say that Burning Wish Unrestricted creates four Yawgmoth's Will decks. How can people deal with this? But I think that's kind of a funny way to look at it. First of all, I mean, dismissing the fact that if you have Yawgmoth's Will on the sideboard, you can't draw it, and that sucks. I think that if you're looking at Yogmoth's Will as at costing three, a black, and a red, it seems like we've existed in an environment where Past and Flames uh, exists. Yes, it's right. not as good as Yogmoth's Will, definitely, but it's still very powerful. It's unrestricted. It can be cast twice, right. and it's not played. Right. Outside of, of very, very obscure decks. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think the thing is, with Burning Wish, you could keep Past and Flames in your sideboard and have your Yawgmoth's Will main deck. That's a good point, too. I didn't <laughs> I, think about that. I think that. that's what, you're, what you end up doing there. But, yeah, I, I, I see Burning Wish more as a control card, I think, than I do a combo. I was, I was excited initially that it was going to be, oh, a mediocre combo card that would be coming back and maybe someone would do something with it. But I think it's actually going to be used by control players if it get used, gets used at all. It's, it's, it's better when used reactively rather than proactively. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and what do you think? 
how much difference does it make that you can't get a card that's been exiled? Now, this is what I wanted to talk about, because people say that that's weakened it a lot. I wasn't playing back in 2003 when this happened. That was during my break right. from the game. Yeah, nor was I. So, I, 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 I mean, I can see potential uses for this. Obviously, if you can fetch cards that have been removed from the game, Burning right. Wish becomes something that you can pick up Yawgmoth's Will again after you've cast it. Right. Yeah, see, I, I think that was a huge thing, and I think being able to... Um, I mean, think of the implications of this, like, Snapcaster made, where you could flashback Time Walk or something like that, and then Burning Wish for it. Play it again. And then Snapcaster. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're not, yeah, obviously, we're not going to have that happen. I mean, I, I, I think I think Burning Wish is significantly weakened because of that. And I, I'm frankly, I was surprised that they didn't unrestrict it earlier when they actually made that ruling change, because... When did they make that ruling change? You know, I don't remember. I could probably look it up. But it's not worth it. It's just an interesting aside. <laughs> Anyway, I'm I'm interested to see what happens with with burning fish. I, I wouldn't say that right now I have any particular ideas in mind. Although if we have a if we have a local tournament, I might try and build up a deck with it, try it out as a a three or four of. Um, I, I think I think that another thing you have to think about when talking about burning wish is the fact that sideboards have also gotten smaller since Burning Wish existed in the form. Oh, that's very true. Because you're going to have less to dedicate to a wish board unless you want to just flat out die to dredge. <laughs> right. Um, Is there a... Unless you have... Are there sorcery speed yeah. dredge hoses? You know, I'm looking that up right now. <laughs> because I can't um, think of any right now. Yeah. I bet there's nothing. I, you know, I don't think there is one. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Nothing came to mind, and I can't think of any effects that wizards would print at sorcery speed that dealt with something like that. Right. Yeah, I'm not... I'm, I'm thinking that if, if there was one worth wishing for, that we would probably know what it is because it would probably be played in Vintage. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, or at least a card to be aware of in Vintage. I mean, it would right. probably come. Right. I, you can pretty easily name off all of the relevant dredge hate cards because they're right. so important and they're so universally played. Right, yeah. So yeah, that's definitely a strike against Burning Wish, I would right. say. Okay, I think we're good on Burning Wish, so let's move on. I think uh, the other the other big thing that's happening for all of Magic is the imminent release of Return to Ravnica. Uh, for one, Ravnica was one of my favorite blocks. I've, I've always been a sucker for multicolored cards. Yeah, and I think they're they're always very interesting from a vintage eternal perspective because having a card be multicolored also sometimes gives it a discount uh, as far as mana cost. You get bigger effects for being multicolored than you would for a monocolored spell of the same converted mana cost. And I, I think there are a lot of cards in this that would potentially just be either replacements for or different ways to do things. Uh, you start thinking about, uh, for example, the uh, Dryad Militant as a new piece of creature-based graveyard hate. I don't know that you would necessarily replace Scavenging Ooze uh, with that, but it, you know it certainly fits well into creature-based decks that want to attack while hindering their graveyard-based opponent, either Dredge or something with Snapcasters or Crucible of Worlds. Although, I guess Crucible of Worlds isn't affected by Dryad Militant. <laughs> I think that I agree that Multicolored cards are a lot of fun and very interesting flavor-wise. I think it's right. kind of funny how, I guess it's, it, you just have to acknowledge how much better hybrid mana symbols are at making effective oh, multicolor cards rather than, you know, multicolor cards that just have multiple, multiple yep. colors of mana on them. 
Hybrid is insanely good. Well, it's also funny that you have to still acknowledge how much better the blue multicolored cards are than the other ones. (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, true. I I think inherently blue cards are just often more powerful, um, and they, they always deserve extra special attention in Vintage. I know I've heard several people say that any of the blue uh, charms, there are charms for each guild, uh, any of those would be playable in Vintage on some level. See, it's, uh, it's funny because I actually have... Speaking about Is It Charm is one uh-huh. that I want to talk about just briefly. Yeah. Because I feel like it's important to talk about those effects at two mana. Uh-huh. And this comes back to why hybrid is so much better, because a hybrid multicolor can cost one, whereas a right. traditional multicolor at minimum costs two. I, I think that there's a problem with is it charm, and that's that those effects kind of suck at two mana. <laughs> because <laughs> that's fair. and and because I think that you have to say, like people say, oh well spell pierce is played in vintage. So this is a card that has Spell Pierce on it that adds to its flexibility. Except that people don't play Spell Pierce because it's good. Right. People play Spell Pierce because it costs one mana. If your Spell Pierce doesn't cost one mana, it's not very good. Right. Well, Spell Pierce is a huge tempo card because you can counter things for one mana. Right. Right. Um, as soon as as soon as you get to that two mana barrier, there right. are way better counter spells that you could be costing. Right. Casting. For example, mana drain. That For one's example, pretty good. Mana drain. And then and but I, the thing is, I don't think that Is It Charm replaces Spell Pierce straight up. I think right. that if you're looking for a card that's that that Is It Charm replaces, it's uh it's your creature kill cards. So I'm talking yeah, lightning okay. bolt or fire and ice. Right. And the problem is, is that I feel like Is It Charm really fails the Lodestone Golem test. Bingo! It fails the Lodestone <laughs> Golem test. It fails the Jace test. Two. De- it definitely fails the Jace test. Yeah. For multiple reasons. Two Although damage, you could counter the Jace. You could counter the Jace. That is a good point. So, <laughs> so that's a place where, um, where I guess it does have a leg up. But it's still, I feel like that effect isn't quite good enough. There's a reason why bolts are everywhere right, right now. Right. Three is the right number. Two just doesn't get there. Right. Well, I, I feel like it's a card that will probably get played as a one-of in a few decks, uh, simply because of its flexibility. It's very tutorable. It does a lot of different things. I mean, even the careful study effect, draw two cards and discard two. I mean, that's that's a playable effect in Vintage. There are a lot of cards that will use your graveyard. You obviously have a desire to draw cards and see generally more of your powerful Vintage cards. It's um, true. So I, I mean, I think I think that you know that gives it gives it some weight. Back when I was looking at careful study, and I was really saying, man, I wish we had careful study at instant speed. I really wanted careful study at instant speed for one. Right. But it's... I, I guess that all I'm saying when it comes down to it is that it really falls short on a couple of marks in those. I, I think that, I think the careful study is a tertiary effect on that. And I, sure. and I think that, that the spell pierce is too expensive and <laughs> the shock is too weak. So right. I agree it's a very flexible card, but I think that if people play these, I think they might feel like they're coming up short. Right. If the Jack of all trades, master of none. Right. Especially if they, like, I, I agree that it seems like as decent as a one of, but if people mm-hmm. start playing these, like, if you just, like, replace your, your three or four X lightning bolts with right. is it charms, you're gonna be really sad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know. I've been, I've been playing lightning bolts in, in Rock Delver and, and they've been really good yeah. all the time. There is no matchup where they are dead. There's a big um, difference between two and three. 
Yeah. Oh, and it also makes a huge difference that you can target your opponent with them. Oh, yeah, exactly. But, so anyway, I think there are a lot of cards that will, you know, be possible replacements for, or upgrades to, or I like this card and not that one for cards that already exist. I, I think the charms are examples of those. I mean, they have effects that you may or may not need at some times. What's the new... The regrowth? No. I want to talk about the regrowth. What are you talking about? I know, we're getting there. We're okay. Getting there. Oh, the abrupt decay. Instinct can't be targeted or can't be countered by spells or abilities. Destroy target non-land permanent with converted mana cost three or less. That's a really good card. I agree, um, especially with that can't green. be countered on it. What's that? Oh, yes, that I think can't be countered is uh, something worth talking about. There's uh, several several cards that have that that would be like I said, considerations in vintage, uh, considerations in legacy. There's uncounterable wrath of God. There's uh, Abrupt Decay, there's an uncounterable counterspell that allows you to also counter every other spell that you don't control. I mean, I, I think that any of those would be, you know, considerations, at least, if you're if you're building a deck that could house them and wants to have that ability. And I, I think I think can't be countered is a is an effect that is really is one worth noting. I, I think there's there's a lot of times where, especially on a big effect card like a Wrath of God, where you really need it to resolve, having an uncounterable version really stands out. I agree. I think that it's a lot easier to stomach on the more expensive cards. Sure. So, like for a spell like Counterflux, I feel like I want I'm I'm willing to pay sort of like a half a mana for uncounterable, <laughs> but paying right. that full extra mana that's tough to deal right. with. Right. The wrath okay. though, the wrath I don't feel like they're they're I feel like that's almost strictly better than wrath. Oh, sure. Like the, um, it, it's the right cost. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I, but I, I, I think that the big thing with that counterspell, uh, counterflux, is that it, you know, you also have the option to counter all of your opponent's spells. That's a good point. <laughs> Although, as you, as you once pointed out, it is also a victim of mindbreak trap if it's... it ever comes down to the point where you have so many of your opponent's spells that you want to counter. Yeah, and and that's a time when if you're having that massive counter war and you play the counterflux. Your opponent will have saved the mind break trap until last. Right, and the mind break trap is free, and you've just spent four mana to do nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I so you though, wanted to talk about treasured find? Yes, because this seems fun, and it seems <laughs> like it has implications sure. for for vintage. I think that my biggest problem, obviously, with treasured find is that people have have sort of underplayed the big difference between paying one and a green, and what is it, black and a green? Yeah, black and green. Yeah. I really would rather be paying that, paying that one colorless. I know that it's almost, it seems almost inconsequential, but having an, being able to cast this off of, off color moxin. Right. That's pretty huge. Right. Well, the, the moxin in vintage often gives the, you, you often have the ability to just pay colorless mana because you have a, have moxes that don't really fit in with your deck. I mean, your mox pearl doesn't always, cast anything white that you have. Exactly. So it's essentially a colorless mox, in which case regrowth really stands out here. At the uh, same time, it's hard to argue with getting a card back from your graveyard. I think right. that the exile is... It's there, but it's not a huge detriment to the card. As people have said, playing five regrowths in a deck that has something like Time Walk is huge. Right. As you get into mid-game, it's really not impossible to be chaining multiple time walks together using sure. treasured find. I agree. You know, I've, I've, I've run into situations playing Snapcaster, for example, where I really don't, <laughs> at the time, I don't mind removing the card from my graveyard. I mean, for example, 
playing Snapcaster and getting back Ancestral Recall. I really don't mind removing that Ancestral Recall at the time, but then if I want to do it again, either with the Ogmos Will or perhaps another Snapcaster, you know, I do miss that. Sure. And that's what that's one thing that Treasured Find helps you get around, is you can get back your Ancestral Recall, play it, and it goes back to your graveyard so that you can Snapcaster it or play Ogmos Will and get it back or play another Treasured Find and get it back. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I think that's not... Um, Putting the card from your graveyard into your hand actually makes a big difference in, in, in a lot of cases. For one, because you can recur these cards more than one. As you and pointed I'm, out... I'm, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, I don't think that the Exile Treasured Find Clause really matters all that much at all. I've definitely played... I've definitely had Yawgmoth's Will turns where I've had regrowth in my hand, and I've used it to regrow a spell that I want to cast on a later turn, but... You know, it really doesn't come up all that often. Usually when you play a Yawgmoth's Will, you win anyway, so it doesn't, being able to get cards out of your graveyard again doesn't matter. Sure. You brought up that it, it has a bit of a clash with the, uh, the Phyrexian Mana Instant that puts it on top of your library. Oh, yes. What's it called? Um, what is it? Noxious Revival. Noxious Revival. Now I know that, um, at Gen Con, when we were playing in that side event after bombing out of the Vintage Championships, uh, Danny Friedman, who went on to win that, was just singing the praises of Noxious Revival, how it came up so often. He was being, right. he was able to, to regrow Time Walk or really any spell that he needed at the time, and it was insane right. all day. Right. Was he, was he playing Oath, you remember? Yeah, remember he, was playing, he was playing, he was playing Oath. Okay. Did you know how many copies he had? Did you know he one? had only one, and by the end of the tournament, he was really feeling like he wanted a second. Okay. And did he have regrowth in the deck as well? You know, I am not certain about that. I don't think he did. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what the comparison was. I, I mean, uh, Noxious Revival is, uh, I mean, being, you know, effectively free and only at the cost of a draw, which, granted, in Vintage can be a big deal. I, I think that's that's certainly competition for Treasured Find. Uh, it's also instant speed. If Treasured right. Find were instant speed, it would be ludicrous. Oh, yes, <laughs> undoubtedly. And I, I, you know, I think when you're talking about returning returning vintage cards, like if you're talking about putting an ancestral on top of your deck, it really doesn't matter that you lost a draw because you're getting back three of them. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I think it's it's an interesting thing. We'll have to see how this performs if people are willing to uh, to pay the price. Oh. Although, in reality, I don't know that that many people are playing Noxious Revival either. Yeah. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. I can't think of a whole lot of decks playing black-green that would want to do this. Um, um, I, you know, I think it would fit. I mean, I think there would, there would be a blue-black-green fish or sort of grow-type deck that might want this. And you could certainly... Um, I was wondering about Dark Times, but, you know, they the power level of their spells isn't such that you necessarily want to get a whole bunch of them back. Rather yeah. than drawing Treasured Find, you could just draw another Thoughtseize or Duress and sure. have pretty much the same effect. I mean, I don't know how much it would be worth to get back a Dark Confidant or something like that. Agreed. I think any time you can get back Ancestral Recall or Time Walk, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> Seems like a good play. You're... I think we already talked a little bit about uh, Dryad Militant being potential graveyard hate for aggressive decks. Uh, and the other big graveyard hate in this set is Rest in Peace. Which is insane. <laughs> I agree. Let's see here. Rest in Peace is a two-mana white enchantment that has Leyline of the Void's text on it, except for both players. And when it comes into play, it exiles both graveyards. So you don't really have to worry about what's already in the graveyard when you play it. I think that if it were missing that last clause, people would still... Because obviously there are decks out there that are not playing black that uh, that then don't get access to the best graveyard hate. Right. They would try and play this card and 
and it wouldn't work because it would come down too late. Dredge would already have too much in their graveyard and they would just die. Adding on that last clause that also Tormod scripts everybody when it, when it goes in, that's fantastic. Two fantastic effects on this card that only costs one in a white. Right. I agree. You know, I'm, the big question for me, I guess, is whether this card fits into a deck right off the bat. I mean, I, I think that, I, I think right now it's probably going to be most effective in a noble fish type deck that doesn't always worry about its graveyard. I mean, there are noble fish decks that play blue, white, and green, don't necessarily play Tarmogoyf. I mean, potentially they could play this main deck. I, I think the problem with, it does compete with cards like Tarmogoyf. Obviously it competes with Yalgoth Will. The other big white deck and vintage would be Bomberman. Shuts off that too. That as well. Yeah, I know. So that I, you said one of the reasons that we stopped playing uh, Invitational Wizards is that Invitational Wizards is an absolute dog to dredge. Absolutely. And this certainly is. It's an effective tool against that. It could turn the tables. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about Invitational Wizards. The problem with that was that it was a dog to dredge, and it was also a dog to Tarmogoyfs. All of the deck, all of the all of the cards in your deck, all of the wizards had power and toughness no bigger than two two, and so obviously even a small tarmogoyf was bigger than most of them. There was nothing really that you could play. I mean, you could overload on dredge hate, but then that left you soft to the more important matchups of blue and shops, or at mm-hmm. least those were the more important matchups at the time. Rest in Peace solves the Tarmogoyf problem and it solves the Dredge problem. Like, you'd easily play Rest in Peace as a four of in your board and have a better matchup against both of those decks. I distinctly remember at Gen Con when an opponent played a first turn Tarmogoyf against me and, uh, it's pretty much sad face brown. I wasn't a happy <laughs> clown. You just couldn't do anything about it. Right. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were digging really fast for that one Stormscape apprentice. <laughs> exactly. And, and like, um, my, my solution to both of those those problems at the time was Jotengrunt, who is not good against Dredge. He's way, way, way too slow. Sure. And it's it's way too easy to play around him as well. All they have to do is not put cards in their graveyard for a couple of turns and then kill you. Yeah. Um, and whenever we, we and, played with Jotengrunt, it was just a waiting game, and you right. could, they could afford to wait, and you couldn't. Yeah. And Jotengrunt, Jotengrunt was very good against Tarmogoyfs, and it was he was good against stacks and mud decks as well, because it could fight their lodestone golems and trade fairly. As a, you know, so I, yeah, I think I think rest in peace is probably just going to replace uh, Jotengren, and then you'd have to beat your stacks decks with the usual assortment of lean and relic orders and ether vials that give you the huge advantage over their mana base. Seems really strong. Right. Yeah. So I, I think rest in peace is going to be a, a huge player as soon as it finds a home in whatever deck is is willing to play white and not have access to its graveyard. And I I personally think this could be great for the wizards deck. Agreed. Yeah. And and you would still be able to play Dryad Militant as well. Too true. A couple other cards that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Niv Magus Elemental and Blister Coil Weird. I think both of these are interesting for vintage, uh, especially looking at the history of Grow-style decks using Query and Dryad to win. Both of these can are creatures that will grow as you play spells. Yeah, but it. they don't really grow very effectively if you're actually succeeding at playing spells. Right. Yes. Blister Coil Weird still grows when you play the spell. It's a one-drop red or blue creature. to one-one. Uh, whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, Blister Coil Weird gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. Untap it. That's right. Um, I really don't know that <laughs> this one is all that interesting. You really have to grow it pretty high 
and have an attack step and have it not be blocked to win. I mean, I, I think there are other creatures that we have, including possibly Niv Magus Elemental, that will do that better. Yeah, I feel uh, I feel like uh, Blister Coil Weird is something to sort of shake up the standard, and mm-hmm. I'm talking standard as in the format, not as in standard as in generic, the standard right. combat step, because you can swing with Blister Coil Weird and then your opponent doesn't necessarily know when they swing if you're going to have an instant that you can play in order to untap your Blister Coil right. Weird, or multiple instants in order to pump him up a little bit, right. and then yeah. sort of shake up whatever attack plan that they had. Right. I agree that the, the possible defense effects of Blister Coil Weird are uh, more interesting than the offensive portions and also of also very and I, unnecessary in Vintage. I, I agree. I, I don't really think this is going to see play not especially not with Niv Magus Elemental competing with it, which fills the same mana slot. It's also a red or blue creature. It's an elemental, and it's one, two. I mean, already you're talking a better base. And that's actually one of the things that I'm wondering about. These two cards are so similar. Yeah, I know you were surprised when we had that sort of shady YouTube video spoiling Blister Coil Weird, and you were like, this doesn't even make sense. If this is real, like, it shares exactly almost the same... Templated right. effect as Nivmagus right. Elemental, and I, I think that's what I was just surprised by. I mean, I, I see where they're different. I mean, one is very offensive, and the other one is you know, more interesting defensively. And it's just I, I'm just surprised that they are so similar in both size and effect that that they are in the same set. Anyway, uh, Nivmagus Elemental is the more interesting of the two. Like I said, it's a, a one-drop blue or red 1-2 creature, and it has text that says, Exile an instant or sorcery spell you control. Put two plus one plus one counters on Nivmagus Elemental. So what this does is it allows you to eat spells of your own off of the stack and gain two counters for it. So you can, you can look at things like um, extra copies of Flusterstorm, perhaps, or spells that are getting countered anyway, or... Spells that you don't need to just pump into your creature and see where it gets you. I'm still not sold on it. I, you know, I'm not either. <laughs> like, I see the applications, but at the same time, I'd much rather just... Um, resolve your own spells. Resolve my own spells, use a different creature that I can count on. Like, right. Niv Magus Elemental stays stupid if I'm doing well. Right. And but if you're doing well, I mean, how much do you need to be attacking with? That's like, a good point. And, and people have pointed out that, that he can pump fairly quickly in order to, right. like, beat Lodestone Golem and stuff like that. But if you're eating, like, two of your spells against stacks, that's probably going to be two turns against shops right. that you've just eaten your spell to do nothing. Right. Yeah, I agree. Which um, blows. I, I mean, you have, to, you have to be able to think about things like, I mean, if you have... I mean, for example, if you have turn one, Lotus, Niv Magus Elemental, we'll say Preordain. We won't even make it Ancestral. We'll say Preordain. Uh, so Lotus, Niv Magus Elemental, Preordain, Flusterstorm. That's, that's four Storm. You can eat four copies of Flusterstorm. So your, your Preordain resolves and you have a, a what would it be? Eight, nine? No, you, nine, nine, ten. <laughs> you did just spend four cards, one of which was Black Lotus, though, on a dude. Well, I understand, but you made an 8-9. Sorry, 9-10. You made a 9-10. <laughs> yes, I suppose I, that I, you I, did. I understand. And you, I mean, at least you got to resolve your pre-urban. And if you know you were playing against stacks or mud, you know, obviously your Flusterstorm isn't going to do anything anyway. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't know. That's that's powerful. It's good. Although that also seems like a really good, better than average application of that card too. So I don't know. I'm still not sure. I, I, as you said, I'm not sold on it. I guess we'll just have to see if someone finds the right I'm, the right shell I'm sure where they can. I'm sure there's some mad vintage genius out there who will do something with this and make it good. Exactly. Speaking of mad vintage genius, uh, the last card I think we're going to talk about, unless you have something else, is uh, Epic Experiment. That was a spectacular segue. Congratulations to you. <laughs> Thanks. I've been doing this all of an hour. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Epic Experiment was immediately looked at as possible vintage applications. I think anytime you're looking at playing things for free, it has vintage applications. Epic Experiment is a sorcery that costs X, a blue, and a red. And its text is, Exile the top X cards of your library. For each instant or sorcery with converted mana cost X or less among them, you may cast that card without paying its mana cost. Then put all the cards exiled this way that weren't cast into your graveyard. You know what I, I want to do with this card? Effect. I want to create a red ritual shell that has metamorphose and burning wishes for epic experiment for a huge epic experiment. But that would still be terrible. I, I really can't help looking at this card and comparing it to Mind's Desire, and it does not compare favorably to Mind's Desire. I agree. And I, I think even with things like Mind Rake Trap in the format, it doesn't compare to Mind's Desire that well, because either one is going to get countered by Mind's Desire, or uh, Mind Rake Trap, rather. And I think you end up putting a lot of a lot of resources into this uh, in, in the form of mana, and then, you know, you don't always have the benefit that you get out of it. Playing it for six, you look at the top four cards, of which average one is going to be a land, at least. In vintage, one is probably going to be an artifact. Yeah. <laughs> so you're looking at, at two, at, at most, an instant or sorcery, two instants or sorceries that you'd be able to play for this. I don't know. I, I, I'm sure that there will be a deck that will come out of this that, you know, someone will come up with and, They'll, they'll probably top eight with it at some point, but I don't know. They'll have it'll be a tough road, I believe. I always worry about cards with X in the casting cost, right? Because it immediately sets up the problem of when you cast this, are you fully committing to it and thus opening yourself up to getting blown out if your opponent your has a counter spell, or do you hold back some mana, weaken your epic experiment, and have whatever mana is left over just in case, right? If you're playing this carefully, are you doing it right? Right. I think the other thing would be, how do you ensure that your gigantic epic experiment, your most epic experiment, resolves and wins you the game? You know, you have to have X be a lot to yeah. have it combine to do something relevant. And I think the problem is that, you know, if you dump everything into the epic experiment, what do you have left over? I mean, you can't necessarily pay mana for any cards that you draw off of your epic experiment cards. I would assume that you'd have mana-producing spells, rituals in your in your deck, but you know there's no guarantee that you draw those. How do you set this up? Do you play Doomsday and have Epic Experiment be your Doomsday card? No, that doesn't sound good. I mean, it doesn't sound good. I, 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 I'm wondering how big your Epic Experiment has to be before you can say yes, this has a good chance of winning you the game. It's probably pretty big. Right. How, how big does your epic experiment have to be before you can say, this resolves and I win? Yeah. And I, I, I think you either have to plan ahead on that and have something that lets you know you're going to win, like Doomsday, although possibly not Doomsday, or it has to be huge. It has to be way overpowered, in which case, why didn't you win with something easier? 
Yeah, I just feel like it comes down to Storm is a more powerful, better mechanic. Right. You can support it better, and it's it's more flexible. <laughs> you know, we, we just got Burning Wish back. You can Burning Wish for Mind's Desire. Sure can. Except and, that uh, makes Mind's Desire cost eight. So you get you get either six spells with Epic Experiment, or six uh, six cards off the top of your library with Epic Experiment, or you could Burning Wish for Mind's Desire. I, you know, I think I'd still go for Mind's Desire. I think you're right. I, I think that anything that would lead to me having eight mana to play Burning Wish for Mind's Desire is probably going to be the right play rather than playing Epic Experiment for six. I'm in agreement. I can't see... I, I was surprised when people were immediately saying, is it restrictable? Because yeah. I would say definitely not. I mean, that's that's like jumping to say, well, Past in Flames is like almost will, therefore restrict it. It's, right. it's not nearly yeah, I, as good at doing what my desire does. I Yeah, I, I think the, the restrictable threshold in Vintage is very high at this point. I don't think they're looking for cards to restrict, really. Yeah. I, I know some people would like to think that they're going to restrict Bazaar of Baghdad or... They won't. <laughs> ...some other important dredge component, or they're going to restrict Mishra's Workshop or some other important workshop component, and I don't think they're looking in that direction. A- anything new that comes out is really not even on the radar as far as restriction goes. Something would have to be really, really generous. Yeah, and it, and it couldn't even be something like this right. that is, is hedges, hedges on its own power... The only way that you could see something that would be restricted in Vintage coming out of a new set would be something that happens to combo with already existing Vintage cards so well mm-hmm. that it just it it can't be allowed to exist. I mean, we were talking about the worst Magic set and brought up Merchant Scroll. Merchant Scroll <laughs> right. is terrible on its own. But when you right. have amazing stuff to get with it, holy cow, right. Merchant Scroll's great. Yeah, Merchant Scroll is really good because there are restricted cards. Right. What would Merchant Scroll be without Ancestral Recall? What would it be without Gifts? What would it be without Mystical Tutor? Yeah, a lot worse. Yeah, and <laughs> Mystical Tutor too. Go get your Yog Mosquito, which is even more insane. Yeah. Uh, I think we're I think we're about done uh, looking at Return to Ravnica cards. Yeah, I think we've said before that there are cards here that cards in the set that. You know, have possibilities. We clearly haven't talked about everything. There's a lot more to discover with this set, both good and bad. I think we'll see, but I think we've covered a lot of the cards that would be most interesting to vintage players, or at least to to Jeff and me. Move on now. I think we're going to talk a little bit. Uh, We have a tournament coming up on Saturday which is two days from now, in Sandusky, Ohio, at the Hero Zone. This would be the Team Serious Open for September. And, um, yeah, Jeff, what do you think? What, what do you think you're going to see? Do you know what you're going to play? Coming out of, I know that you've been having those weekly tournaments in Columbus. I haven't heard about the most recent one, but I know that at the first one, it was like Shop City down there. So I'm wondering whether Shop City is going to move up to Sandusky for the day. You know, I really don't know. We haven't we really only had the one tournament so far. We have been testing regularly, but we did have a 17-person Monday night tournament uh, in Vintage, Infinite Proxies. And out of those 17 people, at least eight of them played shops. Do you think so, that's just because everyone is, like, hyping up shops right now? Shops was good at Gen Con. People are talking about 
throwing around ideas like blue's not good enough, so unrestrict something, or shops is too good, restrict something? Do you think people are just jumping on the shops bandwagon and be like, well, people are saying shops are the flavor of the month, let's play shops? You know, I, I don't think so. I don't think that was the case at this tournament, anyway. I don't know the rest of vintage players, but this tournament was a little bit different. We had a lot of people who are relatively new to vintage. They're not regular players, anyway. I mean, I, they're familiar with the format. They know what's going on, but they're not regular players. I don't think a lot of them would necessarily be comfortable navigating a blue deck through a traditional vintage metagame. Blue is, blue is a difficult deck to play. And obviously, there's there's questions of what you want to counter. There's questions of what to tutor for. Playing a card like Gifts, Gifts Ungiven, is extremely challenging for a new player. I've had players at these, uh, not at this event or anything, but um, in these testing sessions where they've said, just take Gifts out of that deck and I'll play it because I don't want to have to think about having to resolve Gifts. It's fine. Just grab your four best cards and you almost can't go wrong. That's, that's pretty much what I tell them. It's, it's like, go get four good cards... Make sure you don't get Yawgmoth's will because they're not going to give it to you. <laughs> and you'll be fine. Yeah. Like you'll, you'll probably, I mean, you might get to draw three cards, you might get to take an extra turn, you might get to tutor for Yawgmoth's will, you might complete your time vault combo, whatever. But I think it's just, it's intimidating to play gifts. And for a lot of people, playing workshops seems easy. You know, you can joke about it and say, just play the highest casting cost card in your hand every turn. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, I think more effective shortcuts, you know, making sure that you have, uh, at least three effective pieces of hate by turn two. I mean, that's a pretty standard, uh, mud and stacks rule. But I think overall it's just looked at as being an easier deck to play. Every once in a while you open with Lodestone Golem and he wins the game. It's true. Uh, I think we, we had a fair number of players like that. We also had a couple of players who I've really only seen play shops. Alec Kappas is a player originally from uh, Sheffield, Ohio. He recently moved to Columbus. I have only seen him play mono-red shops in tournaments. So, I, you know, he, he was playing it there. He had a friend. Uh, yeah, he had another friend who was playing shops. Does he come to the TSO? Alec? Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he's actually writing up with me. So I guess the, where this gets kind of funny for me is that over the course of going to the Team Serious Opens, my sideboard has gotten less and less shop hate every time. Because right. I literally haven't faced shops at a Team Serious Open in a year. Yeah, well, it's it's been funny because the for a long time, Cleveland was well known as a, a workshop hub. There were... A lot of people who played workshops there and were good at it. I mean, you have you had Nam Tran, Jerry Yang played shops a lot, uh, Mark Trogdon, still well known for playing shops, Anthony Michaels reinvented shops with. And now <laughs> he's Black sworn it off, and I don't understand it. And and um, you know, Jerry has stopped caring about vintage, so he only plays Dredge now. <laughs> and Diablo. Right? Yeah, he plays Dredge and Diablo, um, and hates people in general. So. He's got that going for him. Tuan has been in a funk for a year. I guess I haven't seen him play shops recently. He's he's been playing blue decks recently. He doesn't want to play shops. He hasn't played shops since he uh, missed the opportunity on that lodestone golem painting. Yeah, it just um, ruined him. And and you know Mark Trogdon has you know, he hasn't really played much shops recently either. And the shops that he has played haven't been mud stacks related. They've often been uh, more. Aggro lists. It's a totally different feel than playing against mud. You know, you, you're not 
you don't always have to worry about having the mana to cast your spells because sometimes he'll just play Arkbound Ravager and Triskelion. <laughs> yeah, last last Team Series Open, I played a couple of just uh, free games against him, and he was playing uh, a Thought Cast Affinity deck that right. wasn't quite traditional shoppy. Um, right. Just because he wanted to play something different, I don't know. Right. So I guess it's hard to say whether whether we're going to see a lot of shops or whether we're going to see not many shops. Right. Um, obviously, yeah, right. obviously, rug is is people talk about it a lot. I haven't seen a lot of people talking about it since Gen Con. At least people who are likely to go to the Team Serious Open. I've usually felt that the the Team Serious Opens are fairly balanced. I mean, I, I don't think you see. I don't think we're going to see half the field playing shops. Yeah. You know, I, I think we'll probably see a quarter to a third playing shops, and I don't I don't know that all of them will be. Mono brown mud list. I think I would be 99% sure that Alec is going to play mono red. I would expect Trogden to play a more aggressive list rather than prison. I wouldn't be able to guarantee anyone else to play shops necessarily. I think we will probably see what two or three dread players, maybe more. I know that we have we've got we've got probably that many people who always play dredge. So I would right. say at least that many four or five. I know that I know that at the last Team Serious Open, I played Dredge four out of five rounds, which was the best day of Magic in my entire life. <laughs> How many of those did you win? Did you do well against it? Uh, I think I beat two of them, which I was playing land still. I felt okay about that. Well, you were playing black land still. I mean, you had yeah. I, I mean, I I had tools against them, but uh, I wasn't playing my build that had Tinker in it. I had removed it because right. I wanted to play the build that I was going to play for Gen Con. So. In general, it had a slower finish to it, as land still right. tends to do. So, I, I mean, I think we'll probably see, uh, and actually once you get up to, if you're looking at four or five dredge players, I mean, that's, that's probably close to a quarter of the field. It's probably between 20 and 25 percent, mm -hmm. based on the turnout we have been getting. I, I expect we're going to get somewhere between 24 and 28 players for this, although I'd like to be surprised and we get 35. That would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, I think that's about what we're seeing. I think we'll probably see a handful of fish decks, including Rug Delver. I guess I include Rug Delver in fish decks because it has creatures. But, and that's yeah. funny. I was having this this discussion with someone earlier today over whether Rug Delver is a fish deck. To me, Rug Delver just feels like a blue deck that has Delvers and mm. Goifs. Yeah, I but guess that's true. I guess that there's there's a there's a line somewhere that's very fuzzy over what constitutes fish, what constitutes big blue. Yeah, I mean, my feeling is always that if you're playing creatures, you're playing creatures. It's, he's got, the Rug Delver deck has, what, 12 creatures in it? So that's, yeah, that's, and, and Bob that's doesn't count as a creature for that metric? What's that? Bob doesn't count as a creature for that metric? Um, well, Rug Delver doesn't have Bob in it. I know, I'm just saying as far as other blue decks that like to play Bob. Oh, well, yeah, but they're not, they don't have 12. I mean, they're, they, if they have, what, Bob and Snapcaster, I mean, that's not, you're not looking at 12. Ah, so you're looking at a specific number threshold to make fish. Well, it's not really a specific number threshold, I guess. It's cool, it's, I'm just giving you I know, I understand. But that's, yeah, it's not a fish deck. I shouldn't call it that. It, it is a, a very good tempo deck, but it's not a fish deck. Yeah, I, uh, let's see. Who else do we know is going to be there? Jason Perret is probably going to win, because that's what he does when he shows up, right? Yeah, that's that's true. I can't deny and, that. And, and that guy plays blue through and through, so... 
I know that uh, C.J. Moritz and Paul Kim have been testing some new decks up in Michigan. That they'll misplay? That they'll play terribly and end up in the bottom. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Do you know what they're playing? Is it back to um, show and tell? No, I really have no idea. I've only heard them say that they're testing out new decks that they've put together and that Paul Kim is beating C.J.'s pants off. That only makes sense because Paul is a very much better player than C.J. Yes. Man, are we going to have to edit all of this out? <laughs> no, no, we're not editing any of this out. Yeah. All right, so I want to know what you're playing. Man, I really don't know. I think if I was going to the tournament tonight, I'm playing workshops. I'm playing my Forge Master combo deck. At the tournament that we played on Monday, I went 4-0 with that. If we had played the final round, I would have played against another workshop deck, and I think I would have beaten him. I had already beaten three workshop decks so far. <laughs> I think it's solid. I, I would be interested to try it in a larger tournament setting. So I think that's probably what my plan would be if I was to go to this tournament tomorrow morning. If you didn't shop it up, what else would you be considering? I've actually been thinking about Wizards again. Wizards always had a really good workshop matchup. I'd be interested to, to see if, if that would still hold. Uh, I think I'm less concerned now about other creatures like Delver and Snapcaster. I've been playing against them for a while, and I think I would be able to play around them which actually was a larger concern of mine with Wizards earlier. Are you worried uh, in Wizards at all about the fact that Delver flies and you have nobody that flies? Uh, I think I'd have to figure out a way to deal with it, and I think I'd be able to. I'm not sure. I really haven't put a new Wizards list together, but I think when Josh Chappell and I built that list the first time, I think we did a pretty good job metagaming it for what the environment was at the time. And I think that would just be the necessary thing again. I think the only other deck that I would consider right now for myself, and I don't know that this would necessarily be a deck that I would recommend for other people, would be uh, Lab Man Oath, which I still feel is a very good control deck and has a good, a good finisher combo. Do you worry about the number of lightning bolts that are floating around the format right now with... No, I would go ahead and let them kill the um, Lab Man and then kill them with tendrils. Oh, fair enough. That, that was the nice thing about that deck, is that you either had a handful of counter spells, including mental missteps and cluster storms for their lightning bolts, or you just went ahead and let them kill the lab man and then use uh, Memory's Journey to get back Yawgmoth's Will and win with Tendrils out of the board, or out of the uh, graveyard. Seems strong. Yeah, that was alright. I, I, I played that in Sandusky earlier this spring, I guess. Did well with it, so I think I can I'd be confident in playing it again. Although, I, I mean, I've also been thinking about decks like Bomberman. I still think that deck's a lot of fun. I, I haven't had it together in a little while. I have a Snapcaster and Bob control list that is pretty good, I think. So, I mean, I, I have some lists that I would consider, but I would say I'm probably on the Forge Master stage plan for right now. Fun. Yeah. What are you playing? Well, unlike you, who has lots of options, I really only have <laughs> one or two, two options. For a long time, I was playing that sort of aggressi- uh, aggressive combo list that used standstill as as a card draw engine. It wasn't typical landstill. It was more interested in comboing out. It could play the long game if it wanted to, but I won, I won most of the games with Tinker. In preparation yeah, that for... That, that deck clearly is not landstill. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, and, and that's... I was talking with JR about it, and JR, is, who is really good at landstill, He's like, I really can't give you anything, man, because you're obviously not playing Landstill anymore. Right. So all the rules about Landstill no longer apply. Right. In preparation for Gen Con, since I didn't have 
a lot of the a lot of the moxen that I felt were necessary in order to make the combo part work. Um, uh-huh. Obviously, Tinker sucks a lot if you're short on artifacts. <laughs> I turned it back into a a little bit of a more traditional land still list, but it's more it's become more of a man still list. I'm playing Dark Confidence for card advantage, which is pretty atypical. But I also have some other utility creatures. I've really been enjoying Grim Lava Mancer. A lot of people, obviously, are playing Lightning Bolts. Uh, Landstill typically plays Fire Nice. I've really been enjoying Grim Lava Mancer because he's a he's a turn one play, which I usually don't have. And right. he's forcing all of the opponents who are playing creatures to deal with him. And my logic is that rather than... Rather than attempt to lightning bolt an opposing creature and fighting over resolving the lightning bolt, I would rather sit with my Grim Lava Mancer on the board and fight on the stack to protect my Lava Mancer if I want to mm. protect him, and that prevents them from getting anywhere with any of their creatures and leaves me to sort of develop my board as I wish. Interesting. Being able to keep the my opponent from playing Bob, keep my opponent from playing Delver, it's really effective. Sure, sure, sure. I recently tried out adding Viashino Heretic to the deck. I'm not sure how that's going to work out, but I've been enjoying him so far. How many Lava Mancers are you playing? Just one? Three. Three, okay. I was going to say, it sounds like you, sounds like you kind of want one early. I really want one early. I, he's, he's my favorite first turn play. I've got nothing else to do on the first turn unless I do something broken like Fetchland, Sapphire, and have Drain Man up first turn. If I just have Fetchland, I'll throw out a Grim Lava Mancer because anything, any any counter manager that I have is just as effective with zero mana out as one mana out. Okay. So you're not playing like um, Spell Pierce or something like that? No Pierce. My counter suite in that is Four Force, Four Drain, Two Mind Break Trap. I've got Two Fluster Storm if I... If I have a Fluster Storm in hand, maybe I'll consider leaving one up, but I don't expect to have to use a Fluster Storm on turn one, generally. Right. Okay. Makes sense. It's fun. It's very atypical, but I enjoy playing it. I don't have to do well. Right. Right. I know that, uh, I I believe we played against each other at the last tournament, and you, I was playing Dredge, and you managed to kill me on turn two a couple of times with a um, Darksteel Claw, or a Lightsteel Claw. Yeah, that was when I was playing the, uh, the combo one. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a lot of fun to play, but I think that I've been considering putting Bomberman together. I have all the components for it, but uh, I've been, I really enjoy having two unrestricted draw engines. Mm-hmm. That's why I like playing Bob and I like playing Standstill. Right. You just put Standstill in Bomberman. I, I've thought about that, but that seems like a really dangerous road to walk down. Like, I might just be. I'm already knee-deep in terrible, and I don't want to be drowning in terrible. I understand. I think I think that it, uh, if Thirst for Knowledge were were unrestricted, I'm pretty sure I'd be playing Bomberman all day. Oh, man, we're not getting into that. Yeah, we're not going to get into that, but I'm just <laughs> saying that I enjoy Standstill as a secondary draw engine, and right. I'm willing to accept the negatives of having to play Mishra's Factories that come along with that. Right. If there's well, if, if if there were a be- if if I felt that there were a better draw engine available that fit into my playstyle, I would play it. Well, what about Bob Bomberman? I mean, you can consider you can consider Trinket Mage as a draw engine if you go get Sensei's Binding Cop with it. That's a good point. I mean, I would I would consider Trinket Mage a draw engine anyway because you're going to get a card with it. I mean, it still does something. But something to consider. Just, what's that? It's something to consider. Sure. So basically, it's going to be man still from me. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I'll look forward to facing you in the finals. Sounds like a great idea. I'll have 15 islands in my sideboard. That sounds good. I'll look forward to you having that and me having a real sideboard. <laughs> Drat. Uh, I'm not sure that we had uh, any anything else we expect to see at that tournament. Is there? Yeah, no one's really talking about it. I think everyone is excited to play in it, but no one's really been forthcoming with a lot of details. Although, as I said, Jerry doesn't want to talk about anything except Diablo. I think as soon as Turn to Ravnica is legal, people are going to get really psyched about what they're playing because they're going to get really excited about using new cards, how these new things fit in. Right now, we've been in this established metagame for a while, so people are pretty settled in their ways. There aren't going to be any surprises at the Team Series Mm -hmm. Open. As soon as Return to Ravnica goes legal, we could see, we could get surprised again. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we actually had a question from Twitter earlier that I'd, I'd sort of like to look at. Oh, God, are we going to take this on? Oh, we're doing it. Oh. Um, well, we, we, might, we might look at parts of it, because there, uh, it does break down into parts. Um, the first part would be an evaluation of the health of the vintage community worldwide. And I actually just wanted to talk about this a little bit, because I realized that we, we've sort of started a grassroots vintage campaign in Columbus. I wouldn't say it's quite thriving yet, but it's, we did have a 17-person Monday night tournament. And I think that's pretty big. Yeah, I think that that's um, pretty amazing. I, I I think it's crazy how many people came out of the woodwork for that. Right. And there, I think there's more out there. I think we can get more. Um, there are a few players that would be old vintage players that uh, haven't, I haven't been able to contact yet. I think it could actually get bigger. And I, um, I was going into that night expecting that we would probably have seven people. We, we, you know, register a ghost player for the tournament so that there would be an even eight and then we had this tournament. But I, I was flabbergasted that we had 17. You know, I think that a lot of the health of vintage really depends on being able to organize a community around what you already have. And we did have several vintage players uh, already in the city. Matt Hazard, Theo Lugolopoulos, uh, myself, Sam Crollo just moved here from uh, Wisconsin. And, and we were able to build from that along with some other um, more average, sorry, the... Uh, I'm getting lost here. The, um, <laughs> the younger players who, who play standard and legacy and things like that. And we were able to put together a pretty good format from that. We've had pretty good testing opportunities where we've had six or eight people playing at one time, and then every one of the or the those people actually wanted to have a tournament. I, I wasn't even the one who suggested the tournament. I was thrilled. I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of the help of vintage really depends on people actually going out and making connections and building a format that they want to see. I agree. I think that. A lot of it also depends on how current vintage players approach prospective vintage players, because mm-hmm. there's there's obviously already a bridge to gap, because vintage is something that in the magic community has an awful lot of preconceived notions about it. We all sure. know that this format is... It's feared. People don't want to get involved in this because they already think that they know everything there is to know, that it's just first-turn kills and meaningless interaction that doesn't actually go anywhere you've already lost. Right. I think that if you can if you can get them to sit down at a table, you can be constructive with them. Right. It's really easy to see how much fun this format is and to, to instill that sort of hunger to play more vintage. Sure. I, I think vintage is uh, is very is unique as a format. There are a lot of things that happen in vintage that you cannot do elsewhere. 
And I'm not talking about just the restricted list, although that comes to it, uh, or is certainly part of it. I mean, you have strategies that are, they're not seen elsewhere. Like you don't have stacks type deck in another format. I mean, there, there are decks in Legacy where that you have, you know, you use Ancient Tomb and City of Traders to power out artifacts that, um, and lock out your opponent, but they're not, they're not very commonly seen and they're not, they're not always winner. Mud is very, prevalent in vintage and it you know it's a, it's a whole different thing to play against it i've i've heard from a lot of players that they don't like playing against it which is interesting i thought because i feel like that playing a blue deck against a mud deck or even a mud deck against a mud deck is very challenging it's it's and it's a different kind of challenge than you get from playing a blue deck against a blue deck the interactions are different you have to think about things differently i would agree with that yeah, yeah. It's obviously hard for us to do an evaluation of the health of the vintage community worldwide. Um, And this sort of goes into the next part of it a little bit, in that I feel like the vintage community is very fragmented. Mm -hmm. So you have centers of activity that that may be bustling with... I I don't want to say activity, but... (laughs) (laughs) But they're bustling. That's, That's what they are. Yes. But there's not a whole lot of crossing over, right? and that makes it difficult for you and I to assess what's going on in other centers of activity. Like, I can, we can speak to the Ohio scene and what's right. going on around here very well. I right. can't speak to the Northeast scene very well, and right. I certainly don't tra- uh, track the Europe scene well enough to speak right. about the worldwide scene. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I, 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 we actually talked about this a little bit earlier where, um, we were saying that, you know, going into Gen Con, into Vintage Championship, there was a lot of attention being given to the Rock Delver list. And I think that, you know, I, I think going into that, you really had to consider Rock Delver to be a contender. <laughs> Surprisingly, it didn't end up even top eighting at Gen Con. You know, we were wondering whether that was a consequence of being more metagamed for a particular area. I know that uh, Mike Salamasi is from uh, Wisconsin, would have metagamed for not necessarily only considered the Wisconsin metagame, but he wouldn't necessarily be able to predict the Gen Con metagame. The Gen Con metagame is more encompassing than uh, any of the metagames that we can talk about here. I mean, it's not the Ohio metagame. It's not the Ohio plus the Wisconsin metagame. It's not the Ohio plus Wisconsin plus Philadelphia metagame. It's everything. And it, there's a lot of stuff going on there that would just be unexpected. You know, what it came down to at the end, the finals were played by a mud deck from California and the blue control deck from Europe. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I agree. And then I think that raises questions over how well we are equipped to talk about the format worldwide when we talk about broad sweeping changes to the format, like when we talk about BNR changes, because right. our experiences are defined by the metagame that we play in. Sure. So how I view restricted cards in my metagame is different from how other people view restricted cards in other metagame. And that goes on to talk about entire archetypes. Like people have been saying that shops are really strong right now, is it because shops are played differently in different places and suddenly sure. we're getting that cross-pollination from Gen Con that's, that's changing things a little bit? Other, other shop technologies are, are, are spreading around? Hard to say. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, there's a lot to be said that, you know, we have, we have a vintage community that is online. I mean, we look at things like Mana Drain and Eternal Central where you know, people can go and talk about these things. But, you know, ultimately, it still comes down to what's played in your area. You, you really can't 
you, you can look at other decks from other areas, but even when you, if I look at a deck from Europe, I still have to change it to play in Ohio. Like, I, I can't just take the deck from Europe and, and play it outright, because, I mean, there's a chance that there's some deck that someone plays that I just would be totally unprepared for. Yeah. I think that this goes uh, uh, to a story on the Menendrain. It's interesting how easy it is to to get so focused on the regional metagame that you forget other things exist. So I'm going to go back to that thread on the Menendrain where it said, who is in your Gen Con Top 8? Right. It turned out that only one of those people was in the Gen Con Top 8, and I made a sort of hyperbolic statement. I said, why is it that these are the people that were expected and then the people who weren't expected were the ones who made it. And Blaine right. Christian said, "said I'm not, I'm not a scrub here. I made top eight, and right. and I don't think that it's right to just dismiss people who aren't on this list as the uh, the unexpected." And I was like, right. well, "Why aren't you on this list?" And he said, "I'm not from right. the the Eastern metagame." And right. that speaks a lot to how easily we can get focused on these local things. Right. Well, I think a lot of it too has to do with how much, how much of a presence, how much of a name you make for yourself. But you know, I think Blaine is generally pretty an unassuming guy. I mean, he he does comment in a lot of the a lot of the workshop threads and things like that. And maybe obviously he makes very good points and uh, knows what he's doing. But you know, he's not promoting himself. I mean, you look at someone like Stephen Endian or Kevin Prong who write their articles and do podcasts, things like that. You know, they. They end up showing up on those lists more often because their names are better known. So wait a second. Do you mean that because we're recording this podcast that next year we might be on the list of people who might top eight at Gen Con? It is entirely possible. This is all suddenly worth it. Is it? Is it really? <laughs> Possibly. It's like we should quit now. <laughs> I don't know. Is there, is there more that you want to talk about on this point? I guess that what we've talked about is the fact that it's really difficult to make any statement on the vintage community worldwide or the U.S. and European metagames as they stand because because we are so insulated. I, I, I think I would agree with that. I really don't think that... I, I mean, you'd have to be very well-versed, very, very tied into both communities to be able to make any sort of reasonable statement that would have any basis other than the most obvious things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. And I don't know either. I, I think we're going to come to the last part of our podcast here. And this is actually something that when I said on Twitter that we were going to do a um, podcast, the first thing that Kevin Cron said was to do restaurant reviews. Because <laughs> that's what and, we're known for. And I told him we were already planning to. <laughs> if you don't know that Team Sirius is somewhat responsible for introducing the vintage community to Thurman's, it's just something that we've done. We are, are very... I, I think it's very important to, as we were talking about, build community, and part of that means going out to dinner after tournaments. Yeah, I, I, it's not just Thurman's. I, th I feel like it's the post-tournament meal in general. It's like, tournament's over, all right, we're going here, everyone should come. Right, and, and that's very very much what we do. I mean, it's, it, it, people people are not included. Like, if we're, we're at a tournament, you can always come to the, to the restaurant with us. You don't even have to come to the tournament. You can just show up halfway through, watch some vintage, and then we can go to dinner later. Right. We've uh, I've totally met people at the restaurant after the tournament. So <laughs> it totally works. Anyway, yeah, I, I think probably after this uh, Team Serious event that we're probably going to try and go to the um, Water Street Bar and Grill, which is in Sandusky. 
it's within walking distance of the Hero Zone. We've, We've been, been there before. They have decent sandwiches, a very good beer selection. Is that um, the place that's just across the alley behind the the Hero Zone? Yeah, yeah that's the one. Okay, I remember that place. So, so I'm already looking forward to this. I think that place is actually pretty good. Uh, I haven't been there in a little while since late this winter when we went after a tournament there. Yeah, I, I think that, that it's an indication that last time we elected not to go there because the wait was so long, and we went right. to that bar across the street that was absolutely terrible. Yeah, yeah that's, that's um, is it Cabana Jacks? Cabana Jacks. <laughs> that place sucks. <laughs> it certainly does. People were not uh, pleased. No. We'll do better this time. Yeah, yeah we'll do better. Um, uh, the, the, actually, there's another place uh, in Sandusky that we can try that uh, we went to last time. It was in Sandusky. It's called Hot Dog Tony's. They do one thing, and they do it really well. That thing is hot dogs. They also have a, a fairly decent beer list. One thing that they they do differently is they have what are called splitters, which are deep-fried hot dogs, and they're called splitters because when you deep-fry it, it splits open. Fascinating. Anyway, Hot Dog Tony's has an infinite amount of toppings for their hot dogs, uh, from regular ketchup and mustard to cheese, jalapenos, onion, whatever you want on them. And they were pretty good. They had hand-cut fries. They had the hot dog was very good. They have pretzel rolls for the hot dogs. Um, if we if we end up going there after the tournament, I would be pretty pleased. I'm excited because we're, this is going to be a relatively light content segment right now. But next time we're going to be able to talk about where we went and what we had and how good it was, and that's going to be amazing. I I think it's going to be pretty good. I, I personally I think that the. Uh, potential for the restaurant and food and drink review of this podcast is pretty good. I'm excited. Frankly, this is the part I'm more excited. <laughs> well, that's our show for this time. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I hope you'll join us for more serious vintage. A little trip, take a little trip, take a little